Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. The uh, sexual revolution, well, is well into its third, perhaps fourth generation. Um, We'll have to ask my guest, but the the advent of contraception was supposed to help women rise to a level on par with men, at least professionally, while taking away the stigma of sex outside of marriage. Women could delay marriage and pregnancy till they were ready, until they established themselves in their careers. All good, right? Well, one other thing that was supposed to happen with increased availability of contraception, it was supposed to make abortion obsolete. But the reality is that while the sexual evolution's key component contraception increased, so did abortion. Rates of contraception, abortion, and out-of-wedlock births all skyrocketed simultaneously. And that's a quote from my guest's book. There's something else that the revolution created, generations of men who no longer feel obligated to wed the women who they impregnate, because now it's their responsibility to prevent the pregnancy. Those same men feel no responsibility to care for the children they father. So in steps the government as daddy, and that has had a domino effect on children now disconnected from one of their deepest needs to be close to and live with the man and woman who created them. This sexual evolution created something else even more sinister, if you can imagine, a competing religion to Christianity. Yes, it created a secular faith and not one that holds any hope of atonement, mercy or forgiveness, but one that is intolerant of Christian mores because it is Christianity, at least the Orthodox Bible believing Christianity, that is standing up for the nuclear family of mother, father and their offspring. These are the findings, plus so much more by Mary Eberstadt a senior fellow at the Faith and Reason Institute. In her book, Adam and Eve, After the Pill Revisited, it's one of those books that um, you should run, not walk to obtain. And Mary joins me now. Welcome, Mary. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. This is this is an updated version of the book you wrote a few years ago, right? This is, in fact, an all-new book. About 10 years ago, I published a book about the effects of the sexual revolution mainly on individuals, because my research had convinced me that this was and is a great untold story of our time. We are told by the dominant voices in our world that the revolution was a good thing, a liberation for people. And yet, all the while, since the 1960s, social science has been accumulating, uh, pointing in the opposite direction, pointing to the notion that this has in fact been, for some people, a catastrophic thing. So in the first book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, I examined that social science and what it was telling us about unhappiness, about a marital breakup, about fatherlessness and its effects, etc. In the new book, I am widening the aperture to talk about what the sexual revolution has done on the broadest possible scale. What has it done to our politics, to our society, and 
to Christianity itself, which I think is a big part of the story. And once again, I want listeners to understand, I'm using perfectly secular sources. There is no theology in this book. I'm looking at what the evidence tells us about the way we are living now and what it's doing to the wider world around us. So if you'd like, we could start with politics, where I think it has injected a kind of divisiveness that we are all aware of, but that we didn't sense before. Um, where does that divisiveness come from? You know, Lauren, we use this word woke as a kind of shorthand. Yeah. But yeah. all of that woke stuff is coming from the same direction. It is about defending the prerogatives of the sexual revolution. In some cases, it's about attacking the nuclear family, as we saw with Black Lives Matter and its manifesto that was subsequently taken down from its website. An entire religion, as you mentioned, has grown up around protecting the sexual revolution and its freedoms. And this battle between it and traditional notions of how we ought to live is increasingly intense, not only in the United States, but across the West. Um, there's so much here, but I want to you give an example, um, really a, a narrative uh, of what happened in a small town decades before the revolution or when it was just beginning, when a young teenage girl got pregnant. And I think it was your hometown or a, a town you're familiar with. And then the difference today. Can you tell that story? Because I think it's fascinating to understand this. These are real people that they uh, that are affected. The effects of when a teenage girl gets pregnant, maybe 50 years ago, as opposed to what happens today. Yes. Thank you, Lauren. I was trying to describe what I think is a very accurate snapshot. I was trying to illustrate these abstract points with a story. So in the early 1970s, I was a child in a small town in upstate New York, a village really, and a young teenager down the street got pregnant. And of course, everyone in town was gossiping about it because she was not married. And moreover, everybody knew who the boyfriend was. He was a soldier, newly returned from the Vietnam War. And he made a point of saying that he would not marry her. Mm -hmm. This, in the early 1970s, in a village in upstate New York, was cause for great stigmatization. People couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe that he wouldn't marry the girl. She ended up going away to have the baby. She came back to high school. And to my knowledge, there was no stigma attached to her. But the fact that her boyfriend wouldn't marry her was a cause of great alarm in this tiny community. So let's fast forward. This is, again, the early 1970s. 20 years later, in the early 1990s, I went back to visit a former teacher. And I asked her how things were. And she said, well, as a matter of fact, in the high school graduating class this year, one third of the girls are pregnant. Whoa. One third. So from one pregnancy in high school in 72 or so to a third of the girls being pregnant 20 years later, None of them married. And moreover, of course, there were more pregnancies than that because abortion was fully legal by then. So this gives us a glimpse, I think, of how the sexual revolution changed our world. The skyrocketing of non-marital births and the breakup of families on a scale never seen before all starts in the 1960s. And the story that I'm telling there is multiplied, again, not only in every town across the United States, but across the Western world. So that's one measure of how dramatic this revolution has been. And who 
instigated this revolution that we are really in the wake of actually right now or in right now, you know, who and what started it and what was it supposed to be? Well, in a sense, Lauren, of course, the traditional family and Christianity have always had enemies, right? That's what Marxism had in its sights. It wanted to destroy the family. And other utopians have always wanted to destroy the family. But this revolution, I think, was different because no one really intended that. In fact, when the birth control pill came into existence, many people embraced it because they thought it would be a good thing. The argument was made that it would strengthen families. The argument was made that it would reduce abortion. Margaret Sanger herself made this argument that contraception would reduce abortion. And so there was a lot of happy talk and happy thinking when all of this got started. And the Playboy philosophy and Cosmopolitan magazine put out these glamorous portrayals of life Uh, in the beginning of the revolution. Well, now we know that things ended very differently from what optimists thought would happen. Uh, Instead, again, family breakup, uh, abortion on a scale never seen before, uh, fatherlessness on a scale never seen before. And so in the book, I get into the explanations for why things turned out so differently than what people expected. And interestingly, Lauren, the explanations are coming from secular economists and other social scientists who have looked at this unexpected outcome and tried to pick it apart to see why things turned out this way. And the bottom line is, I think, twofold. Number one, the sexual revolution flooded the zone with potentially available sexual partners. And this reduced the incentive for any man to settle down uh, with any given woman. I'm putting into very plain English (laughs) in uh, long, detailed studies with lots of social scientists in them. But basically, it's that. And subsequently, the destigmatization of uh, non-marital sex. In other words, uh, the disappearance of the so-called shotgun wedding, uh, this kind of thing that we see in the story that I just told, where it seems like overnight, the expectation that a man would marry a woman if she were pregnant vanishes. And Mm -hmm. so between those two things, our world has been transformed. This is not a monocausal theory. You know, when you advance a countercultural theory like this, people often wag their fingers and say, oh, you're saying that it all comes down to one thing. I am not saying that. We have problems and issues over all kinds of things in this country. But I am saying that this one thing, the sexual revolution, is the single least acknowledged Mm. foundation of our social disarray. You know, it's interesting. Um, you brought up the shotgun wedding, and there's probably a few people of a certain age that don't even know what a shotgun wedding is. <laughs> um, if you've ever watched the musical Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, that's almost predicated on the idea. You see a literal shotgun wedding, but it's fun and it's funny because people get it. Because you don't have sex with somebody if you're not attracted to them, if you're not in love with them, if you don't have feelings for them. And that's why what happened to the young girl back in the 70s um, when the man refused to marry her. How could he refuse to marry somebody he had sex with? Didn't you care for her? Didn't you love her? Didn't you? And that's the difference now. I mean, today, I mean, I know of a young woman who basically got pregnant at a New Year's Eve party because she had too much to drink and just had sex. That's a whole different mindset about sex. It changed our understanding of sex 
from something that two people in love do to now it's just recreation. Yes, absolutely, Lauren. You know, when we talk about these things, people on the traditionalist side are often accused of wanting to go back to the 50s, right? Everybody says that. Well, you want to put the genie back in the bottle. You want to go back to the 1950s. Well, one study I saw that I thought was fascinating suggested that it's a reliable estimate that by the late 1950s, about 20% of young women who were getting married were already pregnant. Mm-hmm. In other words, this idea that we're accused of holding of some, uh, you know, golden age um, is an unfair accusation. But what does it tell us if that's true? It tells us that there's a big difference between a world in which the expectation is if that happens, you get married and a mm-hmm. world in which the expectation is if that happens, it's a terrible mistake and you had better kill it and get it out of your life. That's mm-hmm. the difference between the 1950s and now. You know, uh, my sister-in-law's father used to say, um, you know, the first child could come any time, but after that, it takes nine months. Um, and I think that that was the understanding that, you know, you got married when you got pregnant because you had feelings and you went only so far with people, with um, people of the opposite sex. But the, well, let's get to some of the effects of, you know, so all the economic effects of the sexual revolution, some of the political effects of the, of the sexual revolution. And I want to get to the religious effects because that seems to be much more widespread and unknown, really. It's kind of something that people don't really has not have not identified, which is the effects on faith and, and Christianity in particular. But let's get to some of the economic um, and political effects right now. What are some of the economic effects? Well, first, I want to say, Lauren, that I want especially any younger listeners to understand that this isn't just the usual conversation about young people today. I have a lot of empathy for young people today because they are carrying around the compounded effects of, as you said at the outset, generations of people who have come into existence since the sexual revolution. So I think it's especially important to clarify things for them. Some of the things that they wrestle with, like the idea that they can't be as prosperous as their parents, why would that be, are things that are connected to exactly this revolution. So for example, what is the fastest way to impoverish a a household? It's to split it in two, make two households, Mm. and not have the advantage of shared burdens. Um, The economic immiseration of many young people today is coming out of that broken place in a way that is not well understood and really needs to be. Similarly, what's the fastest path to wealth? And I don't mean wealth of a billionaire variety, but Mm -hmm. ordinary wealth. It is, as many people have said, get married, stay married, and accumulate and work together. This is very ordinary stuff, but it's an understanding that is passing out of existence among many younger people, especially because they haven't been taught it. So some of the economic disarray that we see today is the result of generations now living in this broken way. I had a thought about the sort of the uh, the generations of living in a broken way and the idea that the sexual revolution created this sort of sexual freedom. How much effect did it have on the divorce rate? Because that's one of the economic situation. Yes. Well, going back to the promises that were made when all of this got started in the 1960s and the birth control pill became this massive technological shock that suddenly became very, very popular. Uh, This was another unexpected outcome. The argument was made that this would strengthen 
marriage. And instead, skyrocketing rates of divorce became part of the consequence, going back to the fact that the pill, as many people who support the sexual revolution would say, the pill leveled the playing field. And so suddenly the playing field is charged with huge numbers of people who are sexually available. And once again, the incentive to choose any one of them, to resist the tide, to settle down, to live in a traditional way, all of that becomes eroded. And so that's why we see higher rates of divorce, not only in the United States, but across the world uh, with the embrace of the sexual revolution. I want to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with Mary Eberstadt talking about her, her new book, Adam and Eve After the Pill, Revisited. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we're back with Mary Eberstadt, author of Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. This is a fascinating book. And like I said in the introduction, I would recommend that you run, not walk to get this book as, as quickly as possible because she explains so much of what's wrong today. One of the huge kinds of effects of the sexual revolution, Mary, you, you talk about is the creating a secular religion. Um, and a lot of people might be put off by the idea that there's a secular religion. But w- why do you call it a sexual religion? What are the signs? Well, the bottom line here, Lauren, is that it's not true that the the battle out there is between faith and no faith, between people who believe things and people who believe nothing. Everybody believes something. And after the sexual revolution, what you see is this fierce desire on the part of many people to repudiate traditional moral teaching. And it's no surprise. Um, and there's not a family in the in the West that isn't affected by this. It's it's everywhere. But that desire to repudiate these unwanted parts of Christianity, the idea that divorce is something Christians uh, shouldn't do or that should be proscribed, the idea longstanding in Christian teaching, Protestant and Catholic, that contraception is problematic and should be proscribed, the idea that abortion is wrong, all of these ideas that go back to the earliest days of teaching are things that become very difficult to live by in a world where more and more people resent those teachings because they want to live independent of them. Mm -hmm. This is the conflict that we see beneath every religious liberty case. And we will be seeing many more religious liberty cases. The conflict there is between people who stand by some form of organized religion and people who stand by what I believe is a very new kind of secular religion that arises out of the sexual revolution that wants to make abortion everywhere protected and available, uh, that wants to say anything that looks like a family, anything I say is a family, is a family. And the traditional family has no particular standing. Heteronormativity, quote unquote, has no particular standing. This A secular religion that opposes Christianity in particular has uh, very identifiable beliefs like that. 
And I think it helps us if we understand that a lot of the conflict we see, uh, a lot of the fights around the Thanksgiving table, um, Mm -hmm. as we've come to learn, are about this. They're about these very diametrically opposed worldviews. And the second one that I'm describing, the secular religion, is relatively new, but it is embraced just as fiercely uh, with as much loyalty and passion as traditionalists embrace their religion. And we need to understand that this is what the conflict is about. Yeah, you know, you talk about the diminution of the family, and that's one of the signs of the sexual evolution, which is odd because the more sex you have, the idea is that you would have more children, but that has increased the idea of um, children as sort of something to get rid of. It's a byproduct of my recreation. But you said there's a symbiotic bond between the diminution of the family and the rise in identity politics. And identity politics is something people know today because it's identity about my gender, my race, uh, my my cultural experiences, it's identity politics. Why are those two things together? Identity politics and the the the, the diminution, the the um, the weakening of the family. So it is the weakening of the family that has undermined the sense of identity that we see today. Once upon a time, not that long ago, and still true for many of us, if you were to ask, "Who are you?" one's natural response would be to define oneself in relation to one's family. I'm a mother, I'm a wife, I'm a grandmother, I'm an aunt, I'm a cousin, etc. And what we have to understand is that with so much family breakup, those answers have become a lot harder to come by. Who is your father? Could be a confusing question if you are raised, say, by a stepfather or without a father in the home at all. Who is your brother? Becomes complicated if you're talking about half-brothers and step-brothers, etc. And to say that isn't to diss any of those kinds of arrangements. It's just to observe that the kind of stability of family identity that most people used to have is no longer there for many people. What comes in to fill the vacuum? Well, one of the things that comes in, obviously, is politics, and particularly identity politics, because identity politics supplies people, especially people who are coming from shaky family situations, with a ready-made identity. Uh, Who are you? I'm a, a radical activist. Who are you? I'm an LGBTQ person who belongs to this LGBTQ family, etc. It's not only the demise or the diminution of the family that has fueled identity politics, Lauren. I think also the decline of organized religion has a, a big piece of this, because one can also answer that question, who are you, by saying, I'm a child of God. And mm-hmm. that is Christianity's and Judaism's traditional answer to that question. I am a child of God. That's my identity. That roots me in the cosmos. That way, even if things happen to my natural family, including catastrophic things, I have an identity to hold on to that is eternal, Christians believe. And now, with so many people, young people, being raised without religion at all, that kind of answer has also been taken off the table. So you have a lot of atomized people who long to attach the way people everywhere long to attach to permanent things, to a permanent family of some kind. And that is why identity politics is so uncompromising, because it is not politics as usual. It takes that absolutism that we feel about our churches and our families into politics. 
And we see this all the time with the failure to compromise about anything at all um, that identitarians bring into the national arena or bring into local politics. It's why we have so little sense that people are willing to live and let live. It's because for people who are members of these identity groups, there can be no compromise any more than you would compromise, say, the safety of your family. These groups operate as substitute families and substitute churches. But there is no transcendence with these denominations of identity politics. I mean, I I have to call them uh, denominations because they're all part of the same sort of secular faith, right? Yes, and that is the problem with identity politics. It doesn't allow anyone to come back in once they've been exiled. Now, take Christianity by comparison. Of course, redemption is central to everything about it. And we are told repeatedly in the Gospels of people who sin grievously, terribly, horribly, repeatedly, and yet they're saved because they say sorry. Well, there is no saying sorry when it comes to identity politics. If you transgress, you're out, and you will never be rehabilitated and allowed to come back in. And this, Lauren, as grim as it is, uh, to me, could be the thing that spells the end to identity politics, because people can't live this way. People can't live in such an unforgiving manner, uh, you know, geared up at all times with maximum hostility toward people who are in the out group. I think over time, this will be the undoing of this kind of politics, or or so is the hope anyway. Well, you know, we bring up a point because we've done stories on transgender, uh, male or female, but we'll settle uh, women, transgender women who want to detransition back to being a woman. You know, they they became a man and they wanted to become back a woman, but there's no support there for them to come back into their, their sex at birth. And this is part of that example of that is, you know, if you leave, if you violate the laws of secular politics, which is, which is identity politics, um, you can't come back. I mean, there's no support. There's plenty of support for people who want to transition into another sex, but there's no support for those who want to detransition. Yes, and it really makes no sense on a human level, right, Lauren? Because the response to a story like that of someone who's so confused and tormented, going to these lengths to become something else, then thinking it doesn't work, and then going to lengths to return to where that person was, that's a heartbreaking story. And it takes a lot of practice um, not to feel your heart wrenched by such a story. But that is what is practiced in these identity groups. It's so unforgiving. It's so uncompromising, uh, the, the, the system of beliefs by which they live. Um, I would add to that another example, which is uh, the way in which supporters of abortion today have mm-hmm. taken it to the extreme of saying up until the moment of birth. Think about that up until the moment of birth. Why? Why can't there be some kind of compromise on this issue in the political realm? Why can't people agree? Well, we'll we'll draw a line somewhere. Well, we all know why that is. It's because they are absolutists about this. I think all of that absolutism of identity politics, of pro-abortion politics is coming from the same place, which is there is a fear that if an inch of territory is lost, everything will be lost. I think underneath it all, this kind of secularist religion 
is uneasy and worried about the competition with Christianity because it senses, and I think people involved in it sense, that there's a shaky ground there. Um, and out of that comes anxiety. And I think we see this reflected in our politics too. We see this on campuses when students go so far as to duct tape their mouths shut and stomp around when a speaker is in the vicinity who they don't like. You know, that kind of very primal behavior speaks to a deep anxiety, I think, about the contest between secularism and religion. You brought this up in your other book, Primal Primal Scream, uh, the BLM and the supported riots of 2020. And this is a, this is fury of fatherlessness. And it's not about the, you know, the civil rights marches with Martin Luther King Jr. And they were very peaceful. These were just violent. It was a rage against something that they really didn't even know they were raging against. Um, and you talk about that there is a pain here that compassionate Christians have to recognize. How do Christians, how does the church begin to work with people like this if they're being marginalized and ostracized? I think the message there is to acknowledge the suffering of these individuals, but to say that they've got the wrong name for what is ailing them. So in other words, let's go back to those protests and riots in 2020. Of course, they were sparked by police brutality, but they didn't continue to be sparked by police brutality. Police brutality and the outrage against it does not explain, for example, why statues were just willy-nilly defaced across America. They were not all Confederate statues. Defacing a Confederate statue is arguably a political statement, but defacing, say, a statue of Mahatma Gandhi, like happened in Washington, D.C., that's not a political statement. That is just rage on parade. And so what is the rage about? I think we got a glimpse of it in those repeated um, interruptions of people dining outdoors. Do you remember this, Lauren? When Yeah, yeah. This was the height of the pandemic, and so people were trying to socialize. They were dining outdoors, and they would be disrupted by these protesters or by other protesters who went around shining flashlights into people's houses at night to wake them up. This had nothing to do with police brutality. This, I think, shows us that Many people who don't know the stability of home are enraged uh, and anxious about people who do have those things. And even though it was a subliminal motivation, I don't mean that people were doing these things conscious that they, you know, resent people who have families and stability. But nonetheless, I think we saw some of that where Whatever was going on, what started as a series of protests and riots over police brutality morphed into something else, which was a kind of political theater that revealed just how tattered many psyches are among us. And that is something that I think we need to address, whether as Christians or as members of society. And again, I think it has to start with acknowledging that the rage on those faces was real, but it was coming from a more primordial place than many of the rioters and protesters seem to understand. 
You bring up in your book the term two nations, and I forget that I think it was uh, John Q. Wilson, I think, that uh, talked yeah, about James the idea. Wilson. James <laughs> Q. Wilson talked about the two nations. It used to describe economic disparities between the have and the, the haves and the haves not, have nots. But the new description of two nations is the difference between a fractured family and the intact family. Why is having an intact family put you now in the favored category, despite whatever economic situation you have? And 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 then sort of the, you bring out the rage against those who have intact families. Well, yes, James Q. Wilson was pointing to something really interesting, Lauren, which was that you could make predictions about people based on their family situation. That those predictions would be more accurate than would be predictions based on their social class. That's a fascinating fact. And it's not to say that everybody born, you know, raised by a single mom um, is going to have problems. I think one of the reasons I find it easy to talk about these things is that I was myself raised by a single mother for some years. And so I don't feel embarrassment or compunction about that. So, again, we're not pointing fingers at individuals, but as groups, uh, Wilson's point was deadly accurate. Fatherlessness in particular is linked to all kinds of unwanted outcomes. Every sociologist knows this. We could go through the whole list, truancy, drug use, early sexual um, behavior, violence, crime, et cetera, et cetera. Almost everybody who's in prison for a violent crime came from a fatherless home. Almost everybody. This is something that Wilson also documented at great length. And these boys are caught up into gangs because the gangs function as substitute families, as I quote in the book. Um, There have been studies about this, too. Uh, So we need to understand that we have to push past our reluctance to talk about these things because these exact things have more to do with the trouble in our society today than most other things. The other part of the sexual evolution that people have not looked at is, when we talk about the diminution of the family is that many children are growing up with no siblings, um, which means they're growing in an environment where they don't have a sibling of the opposite sex to understand the opposite sex. You know, there is I had, you know, two brothers and two sisters and my brother apparently was, you know, a very good looking guy. But to me, he was just my mean older brother. And so (laughs) I didn't have the effect of, you know, a guy being good looking, being, you know, this fantasy guy. It's like, no, he's just a good looking guy. And I, I grew up with one, so I don't need to, you know, fall down and worship him. That kind of relationship is gone up because not only that, but men are growing up in families where they don't have sisters. So they don't have this protective sense of what it means to be protective of, of a woman. And then if women are growing up without men in their lives as siblings, you bring this point up that now men are now can be just predators. They're not just friends. They're either sexual partners or they're predators. Explain what this dynamic does to a, the, the world and the culture when we don't, when, when young people are growing up without siblings. Well, it reduces what sociologists call social learning. And it's a matter of arithmetic, Lauren. There are just fewer people to learn from in one's formative years. That example that you gave of your brother is is just spot on. That is how traditionally people learned about the opposite sex, by watching their fathers, their mothers, their brothers, their sisters, their cousins, their extended family, their crazy uncle. 
a lot of people don't have those connections. And so that way of learning uh, has been taken away from them. I think one result of this is that distrust between the sexes is what has to be at an all-time high. Girls growing up without fathers, without brothers, are girls who are primed to receive the message that all men are bad. They are Mm -hmm. being primed to fear men. And sometimes with good reason, I should add, since predatory men know that they um, have their best odds with girls who are unattached to brothers and fathers. So that's what's happening on the girl's side. And on the boy's side, I think exactly as you said, men who have nothing to protect are men with a question mark looming over them. What are they going to be? What are they going to use their superior physical strength for, say, figuratively speaking? Um, Are they to stay in the basement and play video games? Or are they to become predators themselves? I, I really think a lot of the trouble out there, Lauren, comes down to this, that every man chooses to be a protector or a, a predator. And our world has left them with fewer people to protect. And that's not to say they can't find substitutes. It's just to say that the, the elementary ways of learning about these kinds of relationships, of becoming a protector or, say, a nurturer, Uh, are not available to many young people today. You know, you bring up uh, so many incidents in my life because I had this older brother, two older brothers, actually, but one, you know, who was, you know, seven years older. So he was in the house with me. And I remember having a little problem with a, a guy at college. And my brother just said, I'll show up. And he just kind of talked to the young man and says, how are you doing? And he just wanted to let the man know, the the young man know, that I had a brother who was there to protect her. And that, and I had no problems after that. He didn't beat him up. He didn't do anything. He just showed up. And I think that's the difference, you know, and and my niece had the same issue with a, with a guy at college. And, um, my, my oldest brother said, don't tell your uncle right now because he'll get a little hot and it might be ugly. But the mm-hmm. the idea was that there were protectors and my nieces know, knew they were protectors because they got that from their father who protected the family growing up and they understood their role. Yes. I feel sorry for young women growing up today that don't have those protectors in their lives and can depend on those protectors in their life. I couldn't agree more, Lauren. You know, some of the writing for this new book came out of my reflections on the Me Too movement. Because during the height of Me Too, when men were being accused of all these things, uh, sometimes rightly, sometimes probably not, but the accusations were flying. And I made a point to read through a lot of these stories. And what I found was amazing, and I didn't see anyone else talk about it. It's the absence of what you are describing. In none of these cases, in almost none of these cases, did a brother just show up to say to the offending man, hi, I'm here. I want you to know that's my sister. Yeah. (laughs) In none of these cases did a father show up. That astonished me, at least in none of the many accounts that I read. There were a couple of times when boyfriends showed up on behalf of these girls um, in a couple of celebrity cases uh, that I can think of. But otherwise, it's as if these girls had been launched out of the finest institutions in the country, you know, the the finest colleges and universities, Mm -hmm. into these rarefied worlds, Hollywood, media, etc., with no instructions whatsoever and with nobody having their back out there. It's amazing. 
And it is a consequence of these revolutionary changes. Mary Eberstead, I want to thank you so much. Um, we could talk forever. I just want to encourage people to get your book, everything you've written, really, but this is your recent book, Adam and Eve After the Pill Revisited. Mary Eberstadt, please get the book. Uh, it has a foreword by Cardinal George Pell. We we lost uh, Cardinal Pell recently, um, and uh, he writes an, an incredible foreword um, in the book as well. Um, but you learn a lot, and you're not going to get this in secular media. You're not going to get this in the entertainment world. Um, you're just not going to find this information out there. And you have put all of this information into a very succinct book that can really arm people with the right information. I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, Mary. Thanks so much for having me, Lauren. I really enjoyed it. Great. I enjoyed it, too. Thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.